Lord. Um, God, I just thank you for those songs this morning, Lord, because every one of them, um, really, Lord, just the prayer of our hearts, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you'd do that. Father, that you'd bring glory to your name this morning. Um, thank you for the promise that your mercy is new every morning, that there's mercy available for us this morning in Christ. Lord, we just pray that you, your Holy Spirit would do a work among us this morning where um, our hearts would be able to receive all that you are, and you're really, 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 really big, and you're really holy, and you're really great, and we don't have words to express all that you are. But Father, I pray that, just as the passage we're going to look at this morning, that you would do that miracle in us, even as believers, even as people that know you, um, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would know the hope to which you've called us. It's amazing, Father. Just give this time to you. I pray that you would please give me words to speak in the moment that I need it, and that the name of Jesus Christ would be exalted today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you. If you got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, this week in our churchwide Bible reading plan, um, we're just taking a half chapter at a time through the book of Ephesians. This week it was Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. Before I say too much more, let me just read this, and then we'll get into it. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let me just pray one more time. Father, again, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we could see wonderful things from your word, and we give this time to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, once again, it, we've, we've had several Sundays like this. I mean, I believe that God is speaking every Sunday when we show up and when we open his word. Um, that's how God speaks. It's always the spirit and the word doing the work. It's nothing else. It's always those things that save us and that change us. Um, but again, this morning, just where we happen to be in our, in our Bible reading plan, uh, I believe that it's, it's providential that we're here again this morning. Uh, as Matt mentioned during the, the opening this morning, uh, we are going to be doing a, a baby dedication here at the end, and, it's, and I'll explain a little bit more about that uh, towards the end and when we get to that. Um, we don't believe that anything that we're going to do here today is in any way salvific, meaning that it will save these kids. These kids need to grow up and they need to put their trust in Jesus. Uh, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's it. But we are really committing the babies, and not just the babies, but the families, the parents, to the Lord. And uh, I say that this passage is, is providential and timely because I can't think 
of anything better to pray for those kids and for those families and for all of us than this prayer here in Ephesians that Paul prays. And that's kind of where I want to jump in at is, is just if you've been reading this this past week, probably the most important observation that you could make is that what this is, verses 15 through 23, is primarily a prayer. Okay? Now for those of you that were here last week, you remember in, in chapter 1 of Ephesians, we looked at verses 3 through 14, and 3 through 14, I said in the original language that it was written in, in the Greek, is all one very long run-on sentence. Okay? Um, the same thing is true of verses 15 through 23, this prayer and some of the stuff around the prayer that we looked at today. So it's interesting that essentially in Ephesians chapter 1, apart from the little greeting or salutation in verses 1 and 2, is you basically have a two-sentence chapter. And you have this first sentence that we looked at last week in verses 3 through 14, um, where Paul proclaims the truth with a word of praise. And then you have this section that we're looking at this week in this, this second sentence. And then he prays in this section, he prays that they will grasp the word he's proclaimed. Let me, let, let me, let me say that again. In the first section we looked at last week, Paul proclaims the truth through a word of praise. And then today, he prays that they will grasp the word he's proclaimed. Now, I say that Paul, last week, proclaims the truth through a word of praise because Paul isn't just giving a lecture here. It's not just dry information. If you remember last week, everything that Paul says is built around these little phrases these three, that appear three times in that passage, that it is to the praise of his glory or to the praise of his glorious grace in verse 6 and then again in verse 11 and again in verse 14 is that Paul is he, he's telling them truth. There are grand truths in this portion of Scripture. Um, and we looked at them last week, and we just kind of skimmed the surface of it because there's way too much to look at. But then, this is important, is that this week what Paul does right, right on the heels of that in this next section is after he gives this, this unbelievably rich run-on sentence, proclaiming all this rich doctrinal truth through this word of praise, he then prays that they will be able to grasp what he's just proclaimed. Now this is important. Okay, And the reason this is important is because the implication is this, is that spiritual understanding and spiritual truth, wisdom, knowledge, all those things, it is more than just an academic thing. It's more, you, you, you do not gain knowledge of a holy God through academics alone. Now, if you guys know me, I, I'm big on study your Bible, get in it. Don't just wait to hear it on Sunday mornings. Open it every day. Get in it. Read it. Memorize it. Tear it apart. Go through it slow. Go through it fast. Read through it in a year. I don't care what you do. Just get in it. Like getting into the Word and understanding truth is important. But if we're to know God through this Word, through this living Word that He's given us, there's more to it than just academics. Are you with me? And let me show you this specifically because the nature of what Paul prays here let me jump into the actual request. So again, verses 15 through 23, there's a lot in here, but there's really only one primary thing that Paul is asking for. He, say, he builds some other things around it, but there's just one thing that he's asking for. And it's in verse 17. So he says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory, and again, Paul's the king of the run-on sentence like we talked about, but now here's the request, middle of verse 17. That the Father of glory, that he may give you 
the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. So, so what does that mean? This is the one thing that Paul is asking for. Here's what, what Paul's saying, if I had to sum this up. Paul is at now asking God, after he's just stated all this truth about God through a word of praise in like a very hymn, song-like, poetic way, in verses 3 through 14, he now, right on the heels of that, prays to God that they would be able to understand the truth that he's just proclaimed. You following me? That's what it means when he says, I pray that God may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. In other words, I'm praying to God that his Holy Spirit would help you to understand. Because, and that's what it means by this wisdom, of, of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. This idea of knowledge is not just head knowledge. It's not just academic knowledge. You guys, if you call Mercy Hill home, you've heard me say this so many times throughout the years that primarily in the New Testament, when Paul or, or any of the writers are talking about knowledge, they're not just talking about information and facts. It's not, he's not just talking about like the way that you know math and you know what two plus two is. He's talking about the way that you know your spouse. It's a relational knowledge that comes through the Holy Spirit. And now again, these people that he's writing to were Christians. We just looked at last week that he had chosen them, he had redeemed them, he'd adopted them, he'd forgiven them, he had sealed them with the promised Holy Spirit. But even though they're, they're, they are believers, Paul still prays that they would understand the grand truths of what he's just spoken of. And I think this is so, 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 so important for us guys. Because as Americans, as Westerners, in this first world country in which we live, and, and none of those things are bad, and we don't have to be ashamed of those things, but self-will, self-sufficiency, independence, human autonomy, it is the air that we breathe. It is absolutely the air that we breathe. And, and we think that in our approach to God, that we can just come to him like we do with everything else and just get her done. Just get her done. That's not the way it works. Is that in our relationship with God, we are utterly dependent upon God to reveal himself to us and to open the eyes of our blind hearts so that we could see him and so that we could know him. And so every time we open this book, yes, we want to study it and we want to take it apart. We want to look at the original language and what does this word mean and, and, all, that ty- and all that type of stuff. But the whole time we are doing it, we, we are doing it with an attitude of, Jesus, please help me. Holy Spirit, please help me grasp what it is that you're saying in your word. And parents especially for those that are, you know, having your babies dedicated today, but to all parents and for all of us. Again, I'm going to frame a lot of things that I say this morning kind of in terms of ways that we can help our kids and pray for our kids and teach our kids because we're having this baby dedication today, but there's takeaway for all of us. Is I can't tell you how important it is that you teach your kids that they are utterly dependent upon God and that you model for your kids that you yourself are utterly dependent upon God in everything. Parents, I want to tell you something this morning that may make you a little bit nervous at first, but then I also hope that after you think about it, there'll be a great peace that comes over you. Mom, Dad, 
you cannot save your kids. You can't save them. Salvation, you, you are, you're responsible to teach them about the Lord and to bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But you need the Lord to do a miracle in their hearts. You need the Lord to save them. It is a work of the Spirit of God that is done in their hearts to bring them and to draw them to himself. And again, as parents, we, that might hit you one of two ways. It might hit you and you might not like that because as parents, we care deeply for our kids and we think that we're in control and we think that we can make everything happen in their lives and we want to control every, every aspect of their lives because we love them and because we believe we know what's best for them. But when it comes to them having a relationship with Almighty God, you're responsible to pray for them, you're responsible to point them to Him, you're responsible to teach them the gospel, to model for them what it looks like to get into the Word of God. But in the end, God is the one that must save them. It's the way it works. And there's, and there's no way around it. Um, again, just this idea of Self-will and self-sufficiency and independence. <coughs> Excuse me. And human autonomy. I, I don't know if I've shared this story before. I think I maybe shared it with the group, the E2 course in one of the classes we were doing a couple months ago. But it was funny. I was watching, one of the, I was watching ESPN, which is like the only channel that I watch when I watch TV. Um, I wish they would just have the ESPN package where they don't know other channels and just ESPN. That would be enough. Anyway. I was watching ESPN and they, it was like a sports center special where they did like one of those little, uh, I don't know, kind of like feel good things where you had like a kid and he won some sort of drawing or raffle or something and then he got to choose somebody famous that he could meet. And his hero was Shaq, Shaquille O'Neal, you know what I mean? Seven foot two, 300 some pounds, freakishly athletic, right? And, uh, and so they set up this thing where this, where this little kid, you know, like seven, eight years old, little guy, was uh, spending the day with Shaq. And so they're riding around in the limo <laughs> or whatever. And, and, and I just, and this hit me, it, it, was, it was so ironic to me, and I get what they were trying to do, but it was just, it couldn't have been more, more obvious that this was not true, okay? Is Shaq, again, seven foot two, 300 some pounds, freak athlete. He looks at this kid and he goes, you know you can be anything you want to be, right? And I'm going, he wants to be you. That's not happening, right? Like you can't will, you can't will yourself to seven foot two, 300 pounds and freakish athletic ability, right? And of course, and, I, and you know, I'm not trying to, you know, it was a nice little thing they did, like this was his hero, you know, that kid will grow up and eventually he'll realize I'm not going to be seven foot two, 300 pounds and have freakish athletic ability. Like it's, like it's okay, but I'm just saying like, but, like, but this, is, this is the way that, that our kids and we ourselves have grown up, like, like if we just want to get it done, then we can just get it done. And, and what it happens is that we bring this attitude to God and into our Christianity, and into our discipleship, and into our church. Our church is. And it's a lie, folks. It's a lie. And Paul knows this. And man, he saw amazing things. In the city of Ephesus, Paul spent 
about two years there, and man, he saw things in the city of Ephesus that he didn't even see in every other city. I mean, like revival broke out in Ephesus, and now years later, Paul is writing this letter back to them. But he's still praying for them. He said, I pray that God in his mercy would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And here's what he, here's what he describes it as, okay? That he would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, that you would, that you would know him and know all these things about him that he just listed. And he says, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. So what is, it, what is it like to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him? What is it like to have this relational knowledge of God? Here's what it's like. It's like seeing. It's like seeing for the first time again and again and again. Is it is when we come to salvation... Like I, for years, I grew up and I heard the truth of the gospel, and I don't think, I, and I, I know that I wasn't saved. But one day, that same truth that I knew hit me, and the eyes of my heart were opened, and it was like seeing for the first time. But I don't think this is just about salvation, because again, Paul is writing to a church that already knows him. But I think the entirety of our Christian life is this idea where we get into the Word and we're asking God to be merciful to us and to give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, in this ongoing relational knowledge of Him. And it's like seeing again and again and again. One of the little babies that's getting dedicated today, actually, there she goes, across the back, little Bella. Um, Ashley's in our small church, and uh, so I know her little Bella... um, better than some of the other some of the other kids but when we were on sabbatical a couple months ago my family and I I had, we had not gotten together with our small church during that time and so you know when kids are little they just they they grow so much over little gaps of time so it had been like three four months since I since I'd seen Bella and when we got together with her again I just couldn't believe how much she had grown and she had kind of reached that stage where you know at, at one point when they're really really little like you're not even sure how far they can really see you know what I mean? And so you're like maybe doing stuff to try to laugh, but they're just staring at you like, what are you trying to do right now? But, but when I, we saw Bella uh, again, it, 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 it seemed evident, that, like you could just see it in her eyes, that now she was just picking up everything. And so you'd do something, you know, and I'd hold up like a coffee mug, or, you know, you'd make a little face or something, and her little eyes would just, would just light up. And it's like you could tell that she was seeing things in a fresh and new way. And, and guys, this is what our Christian life is to be like. Because listen, I want, I want to say this. I want you to get this. If you're nothing else that I say this morning, okay? Very much so, the Bible is the truth of the Word of God. Truth. <laughs> Even though our world doesn't like it, there is such a thing as truth. That means there are things that are false. There are things that are lies. They are not true and they are not right. And as disciples, we get that from the word. So there's truth, but the Christian life, listen, is not just about knowing truth, but it is about seeing beauty. And if you don't think the truth is beautiful, the truth of who Jesus Christ is, then you're blind. 
Because Jesus Christ is marvelous. He is wonderful. And just the information, the facts, it is true that he died on the cross for your sins, that he rose again on the third day. But if you just check that box and don't see it as beautiful, you're blind. And that's what Paul is praying here for the Ephesian church. People that even know Jesus as their Savior, as many of us in this room do this morning. He doesn't just want them to know truth, he, he wants them to see beauty. If you'll remember at the end of the book of Job, remember the book of Job? By God's own confession, Job is, he, Job sa- or God says to the devil early on, Job doesn't know this is going on, but God says to Satan that Job is the most righteous man on the face of the earth. And then Satan says, well, that's only because you protect him and let me you know, bring suffering into his life and then you know, we'll see if he still worships you or praises you. So God says, okay, you know, and you can do certain things. God sets certain parameters that the enemy can attack Job, um, but only so far. And through that whole thing, you know, Job um, doesn't, uh, he doesn't curse God. He says, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, but throughout the book of Job then, his three friends come and they talk with him. And the one thing, though, even though Job doesn't, doesn't curse God, and he's okay that he took him every way, the one, the one, if I had to sum up what Job wanted, he, Job's like, you, to God, he, he tells God, you at least have to tell me why. He's like, all this happened, you know, I'm not going to curse you. Even, his wife, even Job's wife says, just curse God and die. And he goes, girl, you're talking like one of the foolish women. And um, so, but through that whole thing, but Job's like, just, you got to tell me why. Why, why, why? You know I didn't do anything. And at the end of the book, um, for several chapters, like verses, or chapters 38, 39, 40, and 41, God shows up on the scene somehow in a whirlwind, it says. And he's, here's what he says to Job. Terrifyingly awesome. He goes, stand up. I will question you and you will answer me. And then God just begins to, for like four chapters, just ask him a bunch of just machine gun style, just questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? Where were you, you know, when I'm taking care of the little deer out in the woods that's giving birth to its, you know, you know little, little baby deer or whatever. Like he just, there's all these questions reminding Job of how much he doesn't know. And then Job says, I'm sorry, I put my hand over my mouth. But God doesn't let up and he goes, stand up, I will question you and you will answer me. And, and God does the same thing, just a bunch of questions. Basically telling Job, Job, I don't need to tell you why. But anyway, at the end of all that, at the end of the two rounds of questioning by God, out of the whirlwind, Job then responds, and here's what he says. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. That's what God had said to Job. And then Job says this, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust 
and ashes. Here's the point. Is that the terrifying thing about being blind or partially blind is that you don't know that you're blind. Job thought that he knew God, and he did to a degree. But even here, as God described him as the most righteous man on the face of the earth, Job, by the end of this encounter with God, says, it was like I'd only heard of you, but now I see you. And again, I know that I'm belaboring this point, but Mercy Hill, I, I want us to embrace this, and I want us to pray this like crazy. I want to pray it for our kids. I want to pray it for parents. I want to pray it for us as individuals, whether we're old or young, married or single. I want us to pray that we would see God for who he is. And that we wouldn't just know about him like with the hearing of the ear, like Job said, but we'd know about him and we'd talk about him like we've seen him. Why? Because we've had some big, grandiose, supernatural vision. No, but that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that they'd be opened. That we would not just talk about him just like we've read about him in a book, but that we would talk about him like somebody that we have a relationship with and that we know because we've spent, we've spent time with him. And not just affirm that what he says is true, but that we would affirm that who he is is beautiful and marvelous. Joel Beakey and Steve Lawson wrote a wonderful little book. It's very tiny. If you're not a reader, get this book. I like reading, reading little books because they just don't take long. But it's a little book called Root to Fruit where they discuss the, the, uh, um, uh, the connection between, between faith and works. And one of the things they say in that, in that book, the beginning of one of the chapters, is this. They say the whole of the Christian life is little more than an ongoing discovery of the glory and power of justification, or you could say there are our salvation. And they say the tragedy of our Christian lives and the reason there may be so little power in our ongoing sanctification is because we have ceased to wonder at our justification. Let me say that again. The reason there may be so little power in our ongoing sanctification, in our ongoing Christ-likeness, in our ongoing struggle against sin, is because we have ceased to wonder or to marvel at or to behold the beauty of our salvation, our justification. And again, this is exactly what Paul laid out in the first part of Ephesians chapter 1 in that first beautiful run-on sentence, and now he's praying that for them here And I pray that we would see, and parents, I pray that you'll pray this for your kids, that they will see and that you will understand your total dependence upon God. Now, what does Paul intend for this to result in, okay? So the request is, verse 17, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, okay? So there's three things here that I think Paul is aiming at in this prayer. So he's praying, the prayer, the request itself is, is that they would have the eyes of their heart open, that they would know God in an experiential, relational way, okay? But his aim is that in doing that, 
If God answers this prayer, and again, I believe that God is pleased to answer this prayer whenever we pray it, is that they would come to understand three things. Number one, that their future is secure, that power is available, and that the war has been won. Their future is secure, power is available, and that the war has been won. First of all, that their future is secure. Okay, two things here at the end of verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know the hope. Hope is always futures. Hope is something like we, we, we hope for what we do not yet have. And Jesus Christ is our hope. We have salvation, but we're also hoping, we're longing for, we're waiting for the time when um, Christ will come back and we will receive the fullness of our inheritance, okay? Which is also what he says at the end of that verse. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance? An inheritance is not something that you have fully now, but it's waiting for you. It's yours. It's as good as yours in Christ, but we're waiting for that day of glorification. And again, hope here is very different. Um, I feel like I always end up preaching on hope every year for some reason uh, on opening day of the Browns football season, okay? Because, it, I don't know, it always comes, because I've used this illustration so many times, but it's such a good one. Is it right now, Cleveland fans, every year, you know, every year, every year since the, I was born 1981, every single year of my life, this is our year. Whatever, whatever. But when the Bible speaks of hope, it is not speaking of hope in the way that we hope the Browns will win the Super Bowl. We hope the Browns will win the Super Bowl in the sense of like, I, I hope, man, I, I, I hope, but we, we, we don't know. That's not how the Bible speaks of hope. The Bible speaks of hope as something that is certain. It is absolute. It is concrete. It's just, we're just not there yet. We're just not there yet. And so Paul here says, if you, if God is pleased to open the eyes of your heart that we would know him in this relational way, not just with the hearing of the ear, but our eyes having seen him, one of the things that's going to result out of that is, is that we are going to know the hope to which he's called us. Now again, these things kind of qualify themselves. What I mean is this, is that if you're here this morning and you don't have hope, then you haven't seen him. And all the more reason why you need to be praying this prayer. Because in Christ Jesus, you have an amazing hope. It is certain, it is steadfast, because it does not depend on you, it depends on Christ. And the very last words that he said when he hung on the cross, it is finished, mean exactly that, that it has been finished. And so you have a hope that is certain, and you have an inheritance that is absolutely secure. What is the hope of it that to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now, there's some, there's some um, not mystery, but Paul isn't super clear on what the inheritance is. I'll talk about that a little bit. But Paul is much more concerned that we understand not even exactly what the inheritance is, but just how rich and abundant it is. Like through this whole thing, you'll see, you know, just pointing out a couple words here in this passage, what are the, the riches of his glorious inheritance? He's going to go on, he's going to talk about power, the immeasurable greatness of his power, according to the working of his great might. Like Paul is just using over-the-top language to try to get us to understand that our future is absolutely secure. Parents, again, what do you want for your kids? You want them to have a secure future, do you not? All of us as parents want that for our children. God is no different. The difference between God as our parent and us as parents of our kids is though God is absolutely, 100%, with total certainty to secure our future. Because he does not lack in power like we talked about last week. He never grows tired. He never grows weary. 
He has all authority, all dominion, which he's going to go on and talk about here. And so we can know for certain that because of the greatness of our Father, that we have a glorious inheritance. In fact, this idea of God as our Father is very explicitly, Paul wants us to see this connection. Look at the word here that he uses to describe our inheritance. Again, the end of verse 18. What are the riches of his what inheritance? His glorious inheritance. Now, again, if you were are a careful reader reading back through. This word glory just keeps showing up over and over and over again in this chapter. The most recent place that Paul just said it was back at the beginning of verse 17. He says, God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of what? You see that? The Father of what? The Father of glory. That our glorious Father has given us a glorious inheritance. Why do we have a glorious inheritance? Because we have a glorious Father. This idea of of, of glory, um, I think it's Tim Chester, he wrote a book called You Can Change. He, he has the four, he, what he calls the four G's in there, that God is good, great, glorious, and gracious. God is good, great, glorious, and gracious. Is that God is good so we don't have to look elsewhere. Uh, God is great so we don't have to be in control. God is gracious so we don't have to be ashamed. But then he says God is glorious so we do not have to be afraid. We do not have to be afraid. Like, why if God is glorious, what's the connection between glory and us not having to be afraid? Because here's the deal. In the Old Testament, I believe it was the word kavod, was this Hebrew word for glory. In the New Testament, um, you know, it, it's in Greek. But in the Old Testament, the word for glory, it, the essence of it, it just means weight, a heaviness. And so you see that when God came down, when God brought the people of Israel um, out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, God comes down somehow onto Mount Sinai, and there's a thick cloud and dark, and the whole earth is shaking. There's an earthquake, because God, in all of his weighty glory, comes down upon the mountain, and people are freaked out. They don't know what to do. In the New Testament, though, it's not the idea of weight, but the word that is used, um, the root of it, is the idea of shining or brightness. But again, in either sense, it's something that is, it's, it's awesome, and yet terrifying, and you want to behold it, and yet you're scared to. That's the idea of the glory of God. That the glory of God, when we talk, speak of his glory, it is everything that makes God God. It is his godness. All of this weight, all of his shining brightness for us because he is our Father. Little kids, mainly boys, I don't know if girls do this, but little boys will sometimes have that thing. My dad's tougher than your dad. Right? There's nobody tougher than our father. There's nobody more glorious than our father. And to live in uncertainty or to live in fear and doubt about the glorious inheritance that the Bible says you have is to not understand how glorious your father is. And again, points back to the reason why we need to be praying for ourselves. God, open the eyes of our heart. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you that we might, that we might know you. So our future is secure. Secondly, the, that power is available. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power. Again, such over-the-top language, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Like he just overstates it. 
Um, and what type of power? The power is qualified, or Paul wants us to think about something in regards to this power in verse 20. Okay? So we have this abundant power according to the working of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So what kind of power are we talking about? We're talking about resurrection power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that is immeasurably great according to the greatness of his might. And right in the middle of verse 19, it is toward or it is for us who believe that just like everything else, it is to the praise of his glorious grace. You don't have to earn it. There's nothing you can do to get it. All you have to do is believe and keep on believing that his power is abundant. But this idea, why does Paul tie it in with this idea of resurrection power? Again, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. It's important as Christians, this is where, that, that, we, that we understand that there are things about us living as disciples in the kingdom of God that create a paradox that is different from our normal way of thinking. And one of them is, is that it is when we are weak that we are strong. So the power of God was best displayed, as Paul says here, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But, and again, this is kind of a Captain Obvious type statement, but why was God able to display resurrection power? Because Jesus was willing to lay down his life. And so many times we want the power of God and, like, and people hijack verses like this all the time and they use it for name it, claim it, health, wealth, and prosperity garbage where they'll say things like, oh, this power for you who believe, you know, if you're sick, just you know, cast it out, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's ridiculous. The power that God wants us to understand is that of resurrection power. Well, how do we experience resurrection power? We gotta die. We have to die. We have to, must be crucified with Christ. Ultimately, in the end, one day, all of us will die, and we'll be raised by the power of God. But over and over and over again in our daily life, we have to be willing to be crucified with Christ, to be weak, to lay down our life for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others, that the power of God, that the power of God might come through us. And again, parents, teach your kids this paradox. Teach your kids about this thing that doesn't seem to make sense. We love to win. We hate to lose, if I could just put it that simply. But many times, the way to victory in our Christian life and for the glory of God is for us to look like losers. And I, and I want to, again, I don't, I, uh, I was, I'm tempted not to go here because I don't want to be Debbie Downer on Baby Dedication Day, okay? But, I, but this is important, I think. And I don't think I'm being over-the-top um, fanatical about it either. Is I grew up, I already said for you know, some reason in this message that I was born in 1981. I don't know why that mattered, but oh yeah, the Browns. Anyway, but, but most of my life, I've grown up in and around the church, and I've heard people talk about persecution, and that, you know, persecution in other countries, and that, you know, it's probably coming here someday. But honestly, and I thought, yeah, maybe it could, 
But I never really, I don't know, I never really saw how that was ever really going to happen. But just for me, I'm not standing up here giving some sort of prophecy today because I don't think you need to be a prophet. I think all you need to do is read the Bible and have two shreds of discernment. But I'm telling you, folks, it's coming. It's coming. Real difficulty is coming. And when it comes, I want to say something that I heard Paul Washer say a couple months ago that's just so been stuck in me. He was talking about the persecution that he believes is going to come to America someday. And he said, he said you got to understand, when persecution comes, they're not going to come and like arrest us or something and say, these guys love Jesus too much. Because I think we'd all be willing to accept that. You're like, yeah, we do love Jesus. Here's what they're going to do. They're going to slander us. They're going to say we're unsafe. We're going to say that we're a menace to society. They're going to say that we teach our kids to be hateful because we're not accepting of LGBTQ and all these different things. And you know that, They're going to slander us. And then they're going to do whatever they do to us. Okay. Now, again, you might think that's over the top. I don't think it is. I think it's coming someday in our lifetime. But here's what I want to say to that is that this is where all of a sudden it's not just fun and games anymore and the rubber's going to hit the road on whether or not we believe in the power of the resurrection. And the rubber's going to hit the road on whether or not we actually just mentally assent to the truths that we're talking about this morning or whether or not we truly believe that come what may, you can take my life but to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen? And we need to teach our kids to stand. We need to teach our kids that we're not raising them and taking them to this building on Sunday mornings just because we believe a fairy tale. But we go and we worship God because he is risen and he's alive. And finally, um, the other thing that I think will result when God answers this prayer of having the eyes of our heart enlightened and giving us the spirit of wisdom and revelation is that we'll understand that the war has been won. If you look at this, this verse 21, Paul says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Then he says, far above all rule and authority, power, dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. Now this language here, of rule, authority, power, and dominion. This is, this is the idea, whenever Paul uses this language, it's this idea of some sort of a war or some sort of a battle, different, different powers. But his point here is, is that there's no power above God's power, as he's already abundantly stated. Um, in fact, in the book of Ephesians, one of the closest places you'll find that's almost word-for-word -word parallel of this, um, or at least part of it, is over in chapter 6. Uh, I believe it's in verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, where he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now wait, and you're saying, well, wait a minute, Eric, you, Eric, you just told me that the war has been won, but over in chapter 6, you know, let's talk about how we're still fighting in this battle. Well, there's the difference, okay? Is that when I say the war has been won, yes, there are, there are still battles to be fought. There are battles to be fought, and that's our responsibility as disciples of Christ, and Paul's going to get to that eventually in Ephesians chapter 6. There are battles to be fought, but the war has been won. 
And these little battles that we fight are not, ultimate, are not ultimate in determining the outcome of the war because that has already been determined through the death and resurrection of Christ. That Christ, through his resurrection, has now been seated far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Is that when we, when God answers the prayer, I should say, of giving us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, having the eyes of our heart enlightened, we're going to understand that our future is secure, that power is available, and that the war has been won, but because of that war being won, it's going to affect the way that we fight, okay? And I want to say this, is that, um, have you guys ever heard that saying about, like maybe somebody said this about somebody else that seems to kind of have their head in the, in the clouds where they say, oh, that person, they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. Have you ever, has any, anybody heard that? They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. They're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. That is not our problem. Our problem is that we're so earthly minded, we're no earthly good. Again, the quote that I've quoted to you probably more than any other quote since we started the church outside of the Bible, but it's from C.S. Lewis. And he says, those who have made the greatest impact in this life are precisely those who have thought most about the next world. If you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim for earth and you miss both. And that's what Paul is, is calling us to here, is to understand that Christ has been seated in the heavenly places. And if you'll remember going back to chapter 1, verse 3 last week, that we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if you'll jump ahead to chapter 6 and, and read again that verse 12 there that I just spoke of, that our battle is against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But folks, our battle is in the same place as our blessing. Our battle in the heavenly places against these, these cosmic rulers and authorities, this is exactly where we've been given every spiritual blessing is in the heavenly places. It's exactly where Christ has been seated above all in the heavenly places. And so parents, teach your kids that the war has been won. It is finished in Christ. I'm going to ask right now for all of you parents who have babies that are being dedicated, if you would please stand up wherever you are. Can you do that for me? Right now. We're, go we're live. Parents and kids, this is live. Stand up and then come on down and come up here on the stage. I believe we've got 12 of them. 